and that's when I first became very interested in Buddhist art as a topic for future study. It was so um, inscrutable to me at the time. Hello, teachers and learners. Welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhism in higher education. My name is Sarah Richardson from the Ho Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. In this episode, we sat down with Wenxing Zhou, Associate Professor of Art History at Hunter College, CUNY, in New York City. This was a really fun one for me because Wenxing and I are old friends. In this episode, though, I'm not talking to Wenxing about her research, which is normally what we talk about because we both do Tibetan art history, but instead I was talking about her teaching practice. Now, Wenxing has the great good fortune to teach in a school right in the heart of New York City. So her students and Wenxing, together with them, can walk to some of the greatest collections of Asian art anywhere outside of Asia. What a dream. This is a really interesting lens, I think, for Wenxing and her students. And it was a really interesting episode to hear about how to use the landscape of a city in teaching. So please enjoy this episode. So Wenxing, can you tell us a little bit about Hunter College and who your students are? Yes. Uh, so Hunter College is one of the many colleges of the City University of New York, a, a public school in the center of New York City. Uh, we serve uh, mostly uh, the New York City po population. My students come from all the different five boroughs of, mm -hmm. of New York City. Um, and um, I teach both. We have both a undergraduate program and a graduate uh, a graduate program. And I am in the art and art history department um, and we have both an uh, MA program and an F MFA program. Great, great. Um, and what kinds of courses do you teach? You do both kind of survey lecture courses in Asian art and then more specialized courses, right? Yeah, so I my sort of uh, specialty ranges from pretty much uh, different topics. Uh, the, 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 the range of courses I cover uh, include the, a wide array of courses in, in East Asia and the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. So I, Buddhism is my own specialty. Buddhist art is my own specialty. So I teach different topics within it. But I also teach Teach. I just also start uh, finished teaching a class on Chinese painting and calligraphy, um, and I also teach other museum ba uh, museum studies based courses, as well as um, uh, other topics. I'm teaching a seminar right now on the Forbidden City. Oh, Beijing. great! Yeah, so it's a range. Yeah, and. Um before we go into your specifics of teaching and how you open these topics up for students, can you tell us a little bit about your own background? Where did you study and how did you get interested in Buddhist art as a topic? Sure, sure. So I majored in art history as an undergraduate at, at the University of Chicago. Um, I became very interested in the topic. Uh, I grew up um, being very interested in art in general, and I just found a way of looking to be really interesting. Um, and after I f um, graduated from the University University of Chicago, I graduated without a job <laughs> at the time um, and um, went to a lecture that was given by Sarah Fraser at Northwestern University at the time on a, a project she was doing in, in the Silk Road um, city of Donghuang, in, in the Chinese Silk Road city of Donghuang, where she was digitizing. Um, she was, it was part of a, a, a Millen funded initiative to digitize. And um, 
turned into kind of virtual realities, um, the caves of Dunhuang. Um, I was just really excited by uh, being able to see the sites and see the paintings in such detail that I uh, went to see her after the talk and basically asked her for a job. And um, luckily, I was able to join the team and started um, helping her and her team digitize, uh, catalog the, the, the images that they acquired. Um, and that's when I first became very interested in Buddhist art as a topic for future study. It was so um, inscrutable to me at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and that really excited me, just how to make sense of something. As an art historian, I've been trained to look at things in all sorts of different ways. And this is the first time I felt so sort of uh, useless <laughs> and not knowing where to what to do with, with something. Right. A site so enormous and so full of history and so full of different kinds of 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 um <laughs> Art, I'm, yeah, diverse I'm imagery, do, right, yeah. right, and so, um, and that's what's prompted me to go back to graduate school and focus on Buddhist art. Um, and then I subsequently received my PhD from the University of California, Berkeley. I studied with um, um, my advisor at Berkeley was uh, Professor Patricia Berger, and uh, through studying with her, I became very interested in uh, the sort of Sino-Tibetan exchange mm -hmm. uh, and sort of the more broadly the issue of how the Tibetan Buddhist tradition became very um, uh, instrumental to um, courts in China. Mm -hmm. um, and I subsequently wrote a dissertation, which I, after much revision, was turned into a book, my first book on um, the Buddhist sacred site of Mount Wutai. Yeah, your wonderful book, Wutai Shan, um, has just come out last year, right? Congratulations on that. Thank you. It's a wonderful book. Um, and so in your courses with students, do you find, do you do much with Dunhuang? Is that a site that you like in, introducing students to? I do yeah. very much, yes. Yeah. Um, how, what's, how do you do it? What's the way in that you um, start with? I think just presenting the fact of what the place is, is seductive enough yeah. um, for show, you know, just explaining to students here, we have a site that was at such a confluence of different traditions and cultures and religions that thrive for such a long time and that the remains of which we have so much to look at. We have something like, what's the exact number? 300, I don't know the number, 392 yeah. caves that are fully painted. I, the number is wrong. I have to come back to that. Um, and this kind of stretch of cliff facade that has probably something like over a thousand caves um, that ranges for at least a thousand years of history. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually much more. You know, the site was really active until the early 20th. It was pretty active uh, until even the, up to the early 20th century, mm -hmm. starting from starting uh, in the fourth, around the fourth century. Mm -hmm. So, um, the so I think just sort of letting students understand the magnitude of what we have to think with um, and learn from, and of course the uh, the the library cave, the famous so-called library cave, where all the manuscripts were. Um, discovered in the early part of the century also contributed
contributed to the sort of different ways one can have access to the site. Sure. Yeah. So for Dunhuang, we have both all of this visual imagery, this rich visual imagery, and then mm-hmm. a huge cache of texts, mm-hmm. right? That are mm-hmm. also diverse right. in, in multi languages right. right. and yeah, can shed a lot of light on this moment mm-hmm. uh, before. And the text cave was closed by the 11th century, right? As, so all of those texts are very early. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really exciting. Um, so, um, tell us something about your course. In you have courses that are organized specifically around Buddhist art. So, what do you find is most effective to teach about Buddhist art? What do you think mm-hmm. students kind of? Where do you mm-hmm. start with them? Yeah. So, because most of my students have no background so ever in either Buddhist art or so-called Buddhism, um, Buddhist practice. I um, really stress the importance of close looking or object analysis as a gate as a gateway mm-hmm. into uh, this study. I stress to them that it's good that they don't know anything about Buddhism because oftentimes um, it's very easy that we started to use what we know to. Be, to project onto histories and objects that we see and encounter. And so for my class, um, Buddhist art, we look at, we, um, I have them in the very beginnings of class, I would have them, I would have them look at an exam and uh, objects, um, from, you know, we, we're right next to that. We're a few blocks away from the mat. So mm-hmm. I either take them there or I introduce objects from there and, and visit later looking at, um, the art objects from, for ex- one example I can give is we w- would look at an, ob- uh, an example of a Gupta Buddha in the Indian or South Asian art galleries, which is adjacent to the East Asian art galleries. And I would have them look at and compare an example of, of a, a sort of example of, of a form of a Buddhist image in India versus uh, the room adjacent to it of a Buddhist image from North, the Northern Way period mm-hmm. um, in China, uh, in China yeah. where we can talk about um, where students can immediately use sort of formal comparisons to look at what's similar yeah. and what's different. Yeah. Um, and so that's very, uh, this is kind of a very tangible way to access. And and then, of course, we want to talk about after that, after observing the similarities and differences, what can we know about that? Yeah, yeah. And when you're doing mm-hmm. that comparison specifically, mm-hmm. can you help us visualize what what are the objects they're looking at? So they're looking at a, a large stone Gupta mm-hmm. right. Buddha right. from maybe right. a site similar to Sarnath or something? Something like that. Yeah, so it'll be um, a quite... beautifully embodied smooth sculpture mm-hmm. and they'll be comparing that to a metal yes, sculpture right. from the northern way right right yeah. right so they'll immediately see i think in these two examples that they at the met they uh, they change the display a little bit from time to time but they they i've a few times they've had them facing each other mm-hmm. over the passageway that connects it the two wings um and so i think there's the, the as you pointed out the, the material the make mm-hmm. is very different mm-hmm. a sm- mm-hmm. smooth stone sculpture versus a, a metal casting sculpture mm-hmm. um, so and but the I think in both cases we have this kind of form of a Buddha that looks uh, that has similar iconographies sure. for example the right I think the right hand is an earth touching gesture or something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. and the left hand or the left hand is an earth touching gesture and the right hand's in some sort of abhaya or do not fear gesture so they can and then there's also this kind of attention to the ripples on the drapery. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's immediately, I think students can see that these two images belong to 
they have a strong connection in the larger visual world that they come from. And in terms of materials, we can discuss what it means for something to be made of stone. Where does it come from? What does it mean for something to be made of metal? Is it more portable um, if it's smaller? And what about the size of the make? Um, and then also the sort of formal features. Uh, students often like to make the remark, oh, this Buddha looks more Indian. That Buddha looks more Chinese. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which and can they're be, getting their mostly but from an assumption of like facial features or something. Right. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah. Or facial features and also and kind of stylistic style of features. Stylistic dress. And, 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 right. Yeah. Right. And so I would have them sort of sort of unravel that a little bit more mm -hmm. um, and introduce also other factors such as technology, right? So mm -hmm. we have this kind of piecemeal technology for make for casting bronze images that came from a long tradition of um, piecemeal casting in, in, in China that also conditioned sort of the angularities of the way certain images, early uh, bronze images look in China. Mm -hmm. So I think we, we try to introduce these various different factors um, to, to, to elucidate the sort of changes that happen. Uh, one very interesting thing to discuss, I think, not just in classroom, but in, in sort of scholarship in general, is, is do we use the word transmission? Do we use the word appropriation? Mm -hmm. Do we use the word adaptation? Or do we, do we use Look, uh, localization. I mean, all of these words, I think, uh, ha have some virtue and some vices. And mm -hmm. so just a sort of uh, um, uncertainty of how to describe that narrative is something that I would like to uh, open up to the students as well. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Um, and are there other sorts of ways when you're teaching your students, because you're in the, uh, you know, incredible city of New York, mm -hmm. that you engage with the city? What are some ways that you use the city in, in the landscape of your teaching? Yeah, I mean, I'm always, I'm constantly thinking of different uh, creative ways for my students to engage because we do have so much resources. Uh, recently, I've always, uh, I, I remember as a graduate student or a beginning graduate student, I was, I remember the shock of going to Asia Week, which is this annual event in New York City that draws dealers and sort of uh, art buyers um, from all all over the world to for a sort of uh, kind of a is it a would you call it a trade show for yeah. all things objects yeah. all so called Asian art objects so where there are galleries um, viewing galleries auction houses dealers would set up shows displays where basically the objective is to um, bring people to see what they have and also to put things on the market for sale and uh, you know museums are a big part of the uh, creating this kind of uh, participation so because museums also are out in the market looking to acquire things mm -hmm. as well and so I remember as a you know as a young graduate student that the shock that uh, that gave me in terms of just seeing how this was all commodity and for toward a very sort of um, uh, 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 you know this, this is rich people buying fine things to decorate their homes or to add to their wealth or investment um, but now now, as a teacher, I see it as an incredible opportunity for students to think about why we are interacting with and how we're interacting with Buddhist art, mm -hmm. both inside and outside of the classroom, because we 
we can't we we can we we never can separate ourselves from from this larger context and so i take my students now to asia week in march um and i have them i ask them to do an assignment or just casual discussions you know it could be different depending on the class and the level and the topic engaged to ask them to think about um how the buddhist image um the images buddhist images that we learn about you know from dong huang and our early history to a bit later, how they are kind of displayed and presented to this New York audience or to this international audience today, um, how the information is delivered, um, you know, how the lighting conditions, how things are to review, and what is the value, what, uh, yeah. not just commercial, but what is the value of, of Buddhist art today? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that often is very, uh, can be very revealing, revealing mm-hmm. to, for students as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Are they troubled by, or are they curious about sort of... Um, um, the shifting field of of what's assigned value and how mm-hmm. um, do they mm-hmm. do they comment to you on the yeah. ethics of how things are? Yeah, you know, my students, I, I, I are shockingly open minded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think there will be a few that are feeling very indignant, but mostly uh, it's I see that they use this up as an occasion to reflect on their own value systems, mm-hmm. um, and so I think in this way reflect on how much what they know and what they're interested in is filtered through or conditioned by this contemporary context Mm -hmm. rather than um, something older. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And when they're analyzing these displays, are you asking them to do this just verbally, like in writing, or do you get them to do diagrams or... um Photographs, or are there kind of? I should do that. Thank you for giving me. <laughs> I am going to ask them now that you mentioned. I I hadn't fleshed it out completely, but I think it's great. You know, thinking about strategies of display, asking them which objects are located where and how they're located in relation to one another. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, so diagrams, and also I guess photographic kind of like photo journals uh, would be. It's actually very easy for them to just take pictures on their phones and add that into their overall analysis yeah um yeah 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 um and do you have favorite galleries that you always go to or 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 you have so many in your hunter well so uh so um, i really yeah there are so many but i i like to take them to either the sotheby's or christie's Mm -hmm. shows because they're they're just there's so many floors of them and students can then think about how objects are categorized into different sales and displays Mm -hmm. and how buddhist art objects fit into that and how our own category this so-called category of Buddhist art to some degree stands from those <laughs> categories as well yeah. and so those gives you a good comprehensive overview but I will then also go to less well-known or less open galleries to see specific pieces well, a few years ago there was a very I taught a class on picturing Buddhist biographies and there was this very interesting piece of a uh, uh, of an image of a Milarepa that was um, on display at a gallery that wasn't open to the public mm. and uh, that was already sold and so I took students to basically somebody's living room and uh, it was just wonderful to again the context was this display was very interesting but also just being able to look at it closely a kind of very unusual and interesting example what was that what was unusual about this image of milarepa Um, milarepa is a great tibetan yogi saint mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and is often i mean the images that i can that i conjure Mm -hmm. up easily are small bronzes Mm -hmm, usually mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of a figure Mm -hmm. wearing just just a small 
small loincloth and right. often with uh, right, right. hand cupping. Yeah, his this was ear. a tanka. This was oh, a painting. Okay. Yeah, so it had very interesting. It was, I think it was some sort of, I think it would have been probably an 18th century, 17th, 18th mm-hmm. century. I can't recall now exactly. Um, a tanka that had a lot of different episodes, not some, not from his Biography by Sunny Haruka, but from the songs, oh, from from, his gore. Uh, from the right, from songs, the yeah. and so that was interesting because students were reading them to kind of think about what what gets pictorialized, what mm-hmm. gets mapped onto, onto what is what looked to uh, to be a, a sort of biographical as slash devotional image. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> Wonderful. And then um, you've also done a little bit with using digital technologies mm-hmm. to introduce students to mm-hmm. sites. Can you tell us a bit more about how you mm-hmm. do that and mm-hmm. how you teach mm-hmm. with, with so digital tech? We, so I come back to Donghuang again because of mm-hmm. uh, sites like eDonghuang mm-hmm. uh, that is basically continuing what the Millen Foundation's project, Millen International Donghuang Archive, was what's doing uh, and now doing it on a much larger scale they're uh, they're catalog they're they're, ca- they're digitizing the case select case of Huang and it's kind of amazing speed um, so every time I log on there are more caves that seems to have been available for viewing both in terms of uh, going uh, being able to see the wall uh, every inch of the wall in high resolution and also being able to um, take a kind of virtue tour of it through th- of the cave mm-hmm. um, from and and so that I think both the sort of that the opportunity that affords is both close looking, being able to see these in a way that you one couldn't possibly even do when you're at the site, and also getting some sense of the sort of spatial relations of objects to one another, of images to one another. Um, and so uh, one of the possibilities. So so I. Uh, I make full use of that now. There used to be, I still use books. I think books are still helpful. Mm-hmm. In fact, publications mm-hmm. of books, but these e-sites gives you a very, in a very quick way, gives you a sense of, uh, uh, one sense of the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and also with Dunhuang images, because a lot of them are in this very interesting way, a dynamic way related to text that we know and the specific versions of texts that we know. Yeah. And so that also allows us to do a lot of interesting um, comparisons. Analysis, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So can, uh, yeah, what's an example like mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you can work on? Yeah, so two different examples that I often do. One is, um, one example is the Vimala Kirti Sutra, mm-hmm. uh, the Vimala Kirti Nidesha Sutra. Um, and we know possibly the version that was in use in Donghuang at the time, and we have an English translation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I asked students, uh, one exercise I have students do, for example, is to have one group of students read excerpts from the text and another group of students look at images of the te- of sort of these kind of uh, presenting these this text you know referencing this text in Donghuang and then have them come back as a group to th- to discuss the sort of what is it that they see, what are the major features that they see what is the logic of the composition both the textual and the and, and the visual um, you know this particular composition is very interesting because for a while they were often being depicted on either side of the main altar or on either side of the doorway. Mm-hmm. And of course, this kind of idea of non-duality is so central to, to, to the text. And so this idea that we're, you know, this, this, that this text can be construed as kind of a dual, a uh, gateway to dual, non-duality mm-hmm. uh, is, is very captivating. And you have, you know, the, the, the 
this text is about this, this great debate between the lay, layman Buddhist uh, named Vimalakirti, who is supposedly, in fact, a sort of um, embodiment of a bodhisattva, really a bodhisattva, and the sort of a deity of wisdom in Buddhism, Manjushri. And so having them in both on both sides of either the altar or the, the door, uh, really, and, and pairing them with all the sort of dualistic components of the text that actually is supposed to illustrate non-duality, then uh, just is a, is a very ingenious way to um, the, uh, to to compose mm-hmm. this this uh, aspects of this text, mm-hmm. and so that's one example. Mm-hmm. The other example I would I really enjoy teaching is looking at these pure land visualizations, um, the Guanjing or the visualization of Amitabha, Amitabha's paradise, um, alongside these so called pure land tableau, these large. Um, architectonic spaces of pure land. Um, and so that's an, a, yet a very different way of thinking about the connection between a text that uh, is about or prescribes to some extent mm-hmm. these uh, the visualization techniques and the sort of pictorialization of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of what, what matters then. And so mm-hmm. what, what strikes your students as most surprising, do you think, when they come to the visual images in terms of what is there mm-hmm. and what is not? Mm-hmm. What, what do you think... Um, yeah, I think they come from such a different visual tradition sure. that they don't even, I mean, I think they, uh, you know, the other thing I could have them do is also, before seeing the images, come up with their own ways of visualizing this. I think a lot of times uh, things are a lot more, are rendered in a lot more concrete uh, uh, ways than they imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, because they think of these philosophical ideas as being kind of abstract and intangible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, I think what's surprising is, is, is how uh, these very vivid, um, figurative representations from, you know, the local tradition is so alive and well and, and capable of, of, uh, of, um, um, interpreting these ideas mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and are interpreted in yeah very kind of probably relatable ways right palaces mm-hmm. look like palaces they have mm-hmm. gardens that mm-hmm. are recognizable mm-hmm. from architecture right right um, right so they're right. rendered in very kind of yeah human material right right terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. um so what kind of assignments do you like to use with students to um, test them? In so you've talked about analyzing displays mm-hmm. um, and then doing this comparison of text and image. Mm-hmm. What do you help them build through the course towards it? Like, what do you do in final assignments with them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, so for the you know, in terms of going back to the use of digital technology, for example, it's a lot of information to absorb. You have uh, on the one hand just basic iconography what you're looking at and I know that full well from the first time that I was encountering these images and then you have these kind of very sort of sometimes dense sometimes esoteric sometimes a little bit hard to grasp uh, concepts that are being introduced in texts and images as well um, and so uh, one assignment that I, I would like to ask them to do and I, I uh, just I credit this to a colleague of my uh, Mickey McCoy's uh, ask, assigning students to um, take to describe 
a, a kind of give a tour of one of the caves. So that, that, and that I think in that assignment, they're able, they would have to be able to kind of get the basics of looking at what they're looking at, right? The basics of uh, what is it, what is the, the sort of theme or subject matter. Um, and then also think about how as a space it works, mm-hmm. how these different um, tableaus or things or representations relate to one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be really fun having them be kind of tour guides mm-hmm. for a specific cave. Right, right. Yeah. And for each other. That'd be great. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, so you're, so your own research work has been focused especially on kind of 18th century mm-hmm. Qing mm-hmm. Um, adaptation transmission mm-hmm. at the Sino-Tibetan border and exchange. Mm-hmm. So um, can you tell us about that research a little bit? Mm-hmm. What what has it been focused on? And then how how do you open that up to, to your classes yeah, and to your students? Yeah, that's a good question. That's something I've been thinking very hard about because when we because when if you teach the classes chronologically, I rarely ever get to the <laughs> anywhere remotely close to the 18th century, especially in a kind of survey class where there's just so much stuff to cover. But I think if I don't try to, very hard to sketch out a kind of historical trajectory, which is really hard to do. Um, considering what we're covering and the sort of density of the different kinds of materials, what what one thing that's really um, that I can that students that can be very accessible for in the 18th century for students is how much the tradition itself, both the visual material and the textual tradition itself is invested in that narrative of that trajectory of where India, where Buddhism comes from. Mm. Um, so in particular in the 18th century Qing court, uh, what I'm working on right now is uh, uh, this exclusively sort of Tibetan Buddhist uh, circle of, of material, uh, exclusive group of materials that are related to sort of Tibetan Buddhist practice in the Qing court, close sleep affiliated with the emperor, the emperor, the Tianlong emperor and his guru, Zhang Jia Ropei Dorje. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's a, a wider group as well, but basically objects made um, for use in the, the different temples in the Forbidden City and in Beijing and also actually to be sent to for their way places in Tibet. Um, in, in all of these materials, there's this very strong desire to craft a narrative in which there was a continuous link of either transmission or reincarnation and um, uh, um, and uh, uh, a, a timeless link as well between uh, the Indian Buddhist India um, and you know coming uh, descending you know starting with Buddhist India to dynastic Tibet to the Mongol Empire to the ring of the fifth Dalai Lama, for example, the sort of Gelugpa Buddhism, directly then to the Qing court. Mm. So that the Qing itself is really a kind of descendant of that legacy that they're in fact also recreating, reinventing. Mm. Um, And I think that is very compelling because when we think about, I think that adds a very different layer of dimension to this question of how do we teach the transmission or appropriation of Buddhist traditions. Well, but interestingly, Buddhists themselves are very interested in that question. And so I think it gives us a very good opportunity to, um, to, to, to listen to these narratives 
by the people who constructed them. Absolutely, yeah. And those kinds of objects that you're looking at that mm-hmm. that are working to express the importance in, uh, of these many transmission stages. What kind of objects are they? So, um, so uh, for example, one one sets of objects are these uh, paintings, or in fact, uh, they could be. T- embroideries and prints as well uh, of the rebirth lineages um, of um, so rebirth lineage is a concept of course was uh, started in Tibet sometime probably in the 13th century um, and was a very important source of uh, kind of political legitimacy as well as spiritual legitimacy as a way of kind of claiming transmission right not so much through teaching as it is through rebirth um, and that 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 idea really got a co- um, you know that idea already flourished again I think in the ring we see that in the fifth dollar on this court but really was very strongly co-opted uh, sometime in the 18th century in the Qing court so they would so the Tianlong emperor himself in fact uh, we know had that had been recognized as a, as a reincarnation of this kind of long lineage of 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 uh, of, of, of luminous figures um, that trace back, uh, not surprisingly, to Manjushri, who he was commonly known as a kind of bot emanation of. Um, and so we have albums, we have tankas, we have prints that tries to re- re- reinforce, reinforce the notion of rebirth lineage, not just of the Tianlong emperor himself, but the figures in the Tibetan, Indo-Tibetan Buddhist world that he was relating to. So stressing this kind of connection of kinship, of uh, spiritual kinship between him and the Dalai Lama, the Pension Lama, and, and others, um, mm-hmm. other important Gelugpa mm-hmm. Lamas. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so it's basically sort of a rebirth. So rebirth lineage images is one group of images. Um, another set of images are, uh, for example, uh, what, what we, we have these uh, images of Tianlong as uh, the center of this kind of Tibetan uh, spiritual pantheon. Uh, he's uh, the, the paintings of him in the center is generally attributed to the, the Melanese Jesuit lay brother painter uh, Giuseppe Castiglione, whereas um, the rest of it are attributed to court Tibetan painters um, that depicts him in this kind of puts him inserts him in this kind of a galupa spiritual genealogy um, and so so th- th- these are all different kinds of experimentations that tries to make that connection that I just described mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and um, are, are there many copies of these paintings that survive are there um, so the so there are many copies of for example the the pension Lama's rebirth lineage that um, the Tianlong Ch- had first received from the pension Lama the gift but the copies that we have are many many versions that Tianlong had reproduced mm-hmm. uh, and by reproducing of course it's not we don't mean exact replicas but inter- reinterpretations of them mm-hmm. and so we do have and, and they, they, they yeah we do have many yeah. many versions of them circulating and what did he yeah and and some of your research is also looking at ways he gifted these right mm-hmm. and sent them around mm-hmm. so how did how did Chenlong use these 
portraits and images that mm-hmm. are tracing transmission as gifts and what were they meant to affect, mm-hmm. do you think, mm-hmm. in those exchanges? Right. So, um, so we don't know much about the rebirth lineage. There's only one album that I have with their textual records, but the ones of him at the center of this kind of um, Tibetan Buddhist pantheon can rough, sort of roughly categorize it as that way, um, were sent to Tibet as gifts. And um, we know from accounts that they were venerated as kind of uh, object of devotion, uh, which is really just a very interesting thing to what what that means. Um, so we know that he had sent an image to the uh, to Tibet to the to the to Tibet after the death of the seventh Dalai Lama uh, with Drope Dorje, who had been sent as an emissary, um, and that we know that when the eighth. Dalai Lama came of age, he had initiated this kind of routine ritual offering around it. Um, and so it's sort of, on the one hand, kind of appalling to think about how an image of an emperor could then, you know, how he could have just so successfully inserted himself into this spiritual pantheon that seem, that has such an air of sort of tradition and authority. Uh, on the other hand, I think it was a very sort of skillful manipulation and, and that's and that's why in some ways it, I think it might have worked. Um, there are also very interesting silences, uh, sort of references in the Tibetan text that talk about the fact that not everyone approved of it. And I think those are really interesting uh, few mentions of these like, critical voices and I think they, they are also very important for, for the study. Um, can you tell? Uh, can you tell us also a bit about? Um, you have some graduate students, right? Master's students, especially mm-hmm. working with you. Mm-hmm. So, what? What? How do you guide them in their research? Mm-hmm. What do you find is important in training mm-hmm. graduate students? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I most of my graduate students are MA students rather than I, we don't have a PhD program, mm-hmm. and um, so for for I think for them, I think for to have a kind of basic solid foundation for sort of critical scholarship in whatever area that they cover. Uh, um, So I... Depending, I guess it depends on the project that they are sure, particularly sure. Uh, looking at. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you find in in um, helping them with their projects, do they need help writing about their research? Do they need guidance with um, writing, especially? And how do you how do you help support that? Yeah, I mean, every student is so different with their project. I, in fact, I supervise a, a lot of contemporary Chinese art sure. these days, yeah. um, and there I. Do focus on uh, I, I focus on their argumentation because that's sure. it's not my expertise, mm-hmm. um, and I learn from them. So they have because with contemporary art, they, you know, they have a lot of archival material. They have a lot of material. So I really work work with them on how to synthesize this kind of existing scholarship and this sort of wealth of stuff that they're using to make their argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that there, that's the that is that I think there I'm less. Um, um, I play less in a, a role in shaping the project as in sort of providing a critical feedback mm-hmm. to the project. Now, my students who are working on more pre-modern materials, I think there I really work the, with them from the beginning on how to make a feasible project. What is a 
doable project, what is not. <laughs> yeah. And I think so that's so so that's why I was kind of caught yeah. off guard. I try to think every student is so different in terms of what intervention is needed. Yeah. Um, I uh, and I have also students who are really interested in Buddhist art, but they, they don't have really the language facility. So really they their project tend to focus on um, the the Buddhist art in the modern context and the sort of geopolitical um, problems of that. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think just, it's really helping them de develop something that is, that is interesting and, and relevant to them there. And, and when you talk about helping students recognize feasible projects, mm -hmm. what do you think makes a feasible project for a student? What do they need to have? Mm -hmm. What pieces are mm -hmm. key? Mm -hmm. I think enough is, uh, I think we've, uh, enough historical if they want to make some sort of historical argument enough information about where objects were from <laughs> enough sort of documentation to make the next step if they're not doing a lot of primary research then you know if there's not a lot of primary research to be done you know how do they advance the argument that's been done before um, and um, if they want to work on earlier materials where we very much where we have very few sources then I think the conceptual framing is very important in delivering whether you can deliver something new to the existing scholarship yeah 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 it's very vague <laughs> so as you um, as you develop your own research mm -hmm. beyond um, this this first book on Wu Tai Shan, mm -hmm. what is your next step? What are you going to be working on from here? Yeah, so I have just a few, uh, so many different projects going yeah. on. Um, some are related to Buddhist art, some are not. Um, I think I see this as an opportunity to really branch out that now that I have a kind of very sort of focused first book um, mm -hmm. to, to um, I, I have a few different, re you know, one project that came out of that first book is what I've just been talking to you a little bit about. This notion of, I think it really is, it, well, it has to do with this notion of time that is being uh, sort of uh, introduced alongside this notion of rebirth lineage. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one thing I'm interested in is how the Qing, uh, in particular the Qianlong era, responded to, co-opted and reinterpreted this notion of rebirth and rebirth lineages. And so that's one book project that will look at how, you know, it would. I think I would. I would go back to the time of the fifth Dalai Lama and look at what, what was done there. Um, and then, and, you know, coming all the way to, to the Qing, to the 18th century, mm. other parts, perhaps examples in Mongolia, other Mongolian regions. And also I would really like to, the, what part of my interest in this project in the 18th century is how much, uh, the narrative is completely, um, in, uh, completely, uh, interwoven with other senses of time, whether it's dynastic lineage or sort of empirical, uh, time, right? So secession that it had to, the dates of these rebirth lineage figures had to match up such that even though, you know, it's a very kind of uh, eulogy, eulog eulogical attribution, they had to somehow be born and die <laughs> uh, in times that are conceivable within the sort of modern empirical temporal framework. Um, so there's many sort of elements that are interesting for crafting this rebirth lineage that included uh, 
multiple senses of of temporalities, and that I think really persisted up until the 20th century. So I would like to take this project up to the 20th century with painters like Ando Champa, for example, who was still perpetuating, articulating these um, Im- these ideas of emanation and rebirth through things, something like photorealism. Mm-hmm. So that's the arc of this one project I'm pursuing. Uh, a few others. Uh, there's one I'm planning another exhibit. This has nothing to do with Buddhist art, so you can edit it out. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's part of the uh, point you interesting. do. Interesting. I'm planning a because my graduate students, I've said, are not are predominantly not linguistically trained to do pre-modern materials, um, and because of my interest in rethinking narratives, genealogies, uh, I'm planning a year-long curatorial seminar. Uh, the artist, collector, connoisseur, dealer, C.C. Wang, who was arguably the most important dealer, collector of Chinese literati painting in the 20th century. And he lived and worked uh, half a block away from Hunter for most of his life after he immigrated from uh, China to the United States in the 1949. Um, and, and what while he was known primarily as a very, very important dealer collector, he also was, in fact, a very prolific and interesting artist. And so uh, I would like to use him and his work as an example to think about the, the completely interconnected, um, two, basically two sides of the coin, collecting and pract- artistic practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and his sort of reinvention of that so-called literati tradition, mm-hmm. Of that tradition in the post, in the New York post world post World War II context, mm. um, and how he so seamlessly, you know, combined he collected to paint to create models, and so to kind of introduce students to this idea. Students will be will be doing a seminar, and then students will be curating a show of his of his works, um, thinking about how looking and collecting and practice are 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 completely. Um, uh, integral to mm-hmm. one another in mm-hmm. practice and mm-hmm. also to as a way to also kind of revive what this kind of hi- this kind of very interesting history of 20th century New York in the formation of the um, uh, Chinese art canon um, mm-hmm. that we have now. Yeah. So it's a very different project altogether. That's fascinating though. So C.C. Wong as an artist, which I didn't actually know about, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I knew about him as a as yeah. a writer about right. literati painting, right? And mm-hmm. Or collector. Catalogs. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Um, but uh, so... It was did that art circulate much? Was did he sell yeah, a lot he, of it? He's, yeah, he you know he sold. He was uh, yeah. And I would say it's still you know if you go to auctions now, his art is still mm. uh, you know for, for sale, and you still see them. He they were he he lived a long life, so he was fairly prolific too. And it was very interesting because he was someone who truly lived and believed and and adhered to this tradition of literati tradition of Dong Qichang. At the same time, he was never bound by it. Um, so he would, you know, just feel free to experiment. He has these paintings of still lives. He, his, I think his studio overlooked the Mark Rothko studio also on the Upper East Side. And so he had windows to that view of that studio. And he experimented with abstract expressionism, various movements. So you can call pop art perhaps as well. Experiment with using a Sharpie, for example, rather than brush. And so he was, and his, you know, his calligraphy was really 
uh, sort of at the same time, you know, this was not someone who was looking to uh, to go outside of his tradition. He was simply he was really someone who embodied that tradition, but wasn't bound by it. So I think it's just a he's just a wonderful example. I don't know how his art actually doesn't sell for the value is not as high as somebody like Zhang Daqian, who was a friend and a contemporary of his. Uh, but they are very interesting and they are very uh, wonderful works of, of he predominantly work in landscape paintings um, and in a way that we can really for students to really access what is sort of quintess what is sort of essential in a, in a landscape painting for someone like him who has seen he probably has also he, you know if you think of it that way he as a person he probably saw more works of of Chinese painting than than anyone ever did <laughs> in the circumstances that he was in and so what does that mean how does that translate into his practice um, <laughs> and yourself do you collect art do you have an interest in collecting no, art I, no I actually that I, just, I strangely don't <laughs> I love looking um, mm-hmm. I don't I don't have a no, I don't have a collecting practice, and I, I. It's interesting because I think my relation to art has never been one that is a direct kind of uh, appreciation. It's always come from a probably slightly more distanced and intellectual engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, that may have something to do with it, uh, but I do love. <laughs> looking and I do I do find that act very engaging um, perhaps also from lack of funds maybe <laughs> yeah. know, buying art is very expensive but, work yeah but I but I'm yeah so that's mm-hmm. yeah and then I never also feel like owning anything I think that's another thing it would be its own kind <laughs> of it's burden be, it's, I think that's yeah exactly I think I already have a, a, a lot of people to take care of I, and I think just that my relationship doesn't I somehow something about it doesn't uh it doesn't register with me. I, I think I'm, I'm happy to, to look and I have, but I don't, the idea of owning is both burdensome and almost, I don't know. It's just not how I relate to, to them as objects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah. that's why. Yeah. yeah. You're interested in the questions they open up for you, right? And uh, the, um, yeah, I'm not interested in ownership, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so as you've developed as a, teacher in the last um, few years of your teaching, what has changed? What what mm. do you feel is changing and where would you like to yeah. develop more in your teaching? Uh, I think I would like to slow down, slow down, slow down. Those are three things, goals I have for myself. Mm. I think um, as a when I started out, I also be, from I feel like I need to cover certain grounds um, for my for for the time that I spent my with my students to be worthwhile, that they need to know certain things, and that coverage was something that was important. Um, less and less, I feel that way. Um, I feel that it, it's much more valuable to to take the time with something, either it's an object or period in question, uh, and just sort of going back to the basics of closed looking and closed thinking. Um, it's it's rare that one can really, in a semester's time, master anything beyond that. Um, and so I am still trying to see how I can um, uh, really, I think, take advantage of the the resources of New York City to expose my students to um, <clears throat> To more close engagement, uh, and so that's and that's something that is 
difficult to do if you were to recycle the same course over and over again because the exhibit display changes. And so what I what I felt more comfortable in recent years is to not worry about really mastering anything because if you you know go to a show that you haven't been to, obviously I you know instead of worrying that I can't teach it, I just welcome my students and myself to kind of think about it. And so that's been a very liberating experience. Yeah, and they say to cover one thing well is in fact probably much more valuable to mm-hmm. your students than mm-hmm. 50 mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. cursorily right, that, from right. which they can retain yeah. little. Yeah, so I think with that, yeah, so with that also comes the possibility of more creative engagement. So I teach, for example, this one class, um, Survey of East Asia, we are going to spend a, few, a good few weeks on funerary art. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, I want them to really think about what are the things that are made for the afterlife. On the other hand, it's topic that is very, very directly related to everyone's life. So, you know, I would like for that to to make that point so that they can, I think it just sort of creating some sort of connection that they can hold on to. Um, it's, it's, it's all I'm asking. So for example, for this class, they'll go to the Met, but they, I would also like them to go to Mulberry Street in Chinatown where they can actually look at contemporary examples of funerary objects. And then there they can really think about that compare that con- that this like what is you know what does it mean to to have something uh to do uh you know uh how do you compare a I don't know, a paper Tesla <laughs> with uh, some sort of funerary figurine made of ceramics. Um, you know, th- I think really kind of, and so I'm just, I think now tr- feeling may, very much less unburdened, very less, bur- uh, less burdened by the necessity of sort of uh, um, creating an accurate historical context, but really seeing how we can engage with something closely um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. R- relevantly as well. Yeah. Um, Do you feel that, I mean, studying art opens up these unique ways to help students and help people understand themselves better? Understand absolutely. And absolutely. What it, yeah. Yeah. Because um, it sounds like from that description of, of that it's not then so much about feeling that they all need to walk away from your course with courses with a, you know, fine tuned knowledge of the history of, you know, Asian art, but maybe with a better understanding of why people make things and then mm-hmm. question mm-hmm. how they make meaning in the world themselves. Yeah, I think so. I think I'm not training a group of uh, Asian art historians. <laughs> I, I'm trained. I think it's helping people to think and reflect and be intelligently about the past yeah. um, and in way and, and especially about pasts that are that seem really foreign um, and um, and sort of I think yeah I think every day I think actually when I when I go before I lecture I think every day about the material that I'm covering I think why does this why does this matter to them why does it matter to me um, and I think that's a helpful it's a helpful question yeah mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here with us on this episode of The Circled Square. Thank you so much, Sarah, for having me. Thank you, Wenching. That was Wenching Joe talking about her own experiences in teaching, from image cataloging to virtual access to cave sites. I think it's really interesting how Wenching is thinking about space, the ways it determines how we understand art. 
for people who are teaching Buddhist studies, I think this was a really interesting episode to think about art history and its potential in teaching about Buddhism, where we also teach that art is not just historical objects, but also still operative in other ways. For instance, commodities still being bought and sold and traded in our contemporary world. For reference to the resources that we discussed in this episode, please check our show notes. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, we'd really love to hear from you. So if you're interested, please drop us a line. A big special thanks to our creative director, Betsy Moss, who's making these podcasts here with me. Thanks, Betsy. Thank you. All right. Be well. Be well.